Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week at a little after 10.30 a.m. Thursday, August 10th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, good morning, Julie. Sarah Cliff of Vox. Hello. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. So both Congress and President Trump are finally gone for their August vacations, a little belatedly in some cases. Uh, And now we have a little bit of room to breathe, but not so much if you're an insurance company that sells individual health policies on the health exchanges or might want to do that for 2018. Uh, We have a whole bunch of deadlines coming up. Who wants to talk about what has to happen and when? Sarah? Um, A lot has to happen, and it has to happen very soon as kind of the summary. So insurance companies need to finalize their prices by mid-August. There's an August 21st deadline um, for the federal marketplace, healthcare.gov, some deadlines around there for the state marketplaces. And then by the end of September, insurance companies have to make that final call. Do they want to sell coverage on the marketplaces or not? And That's when they they actually sign the contract. Then they sign the contract. They're in. It's much harder to get out. I believe it's a September 27th deadline for healthcare.gov and around that for the state marketplaces. And it's a hard decision, and we're starting to see just the effects of uncertainty, what they're having on premiums. The Kaiser Family Foundation put out a study this morning looking at how much premiums are going up, and they attribute a lot of those increases to uncertainty. Health insurance companies are, in many cases, pricing without the cost-sharing reduction subsidies we've talked about before. They're pricing assuming the individual mandate, and it might not be strongly enforced. Um, So the uncertainty is real. It's having an effect on prices, but it's it's hard. One of the things that was interesting to me in this Kaiser Family Foundation report is that insurance companies are all over the place in how they're pricing the uncertainty. And I guess, you know, it makes sense when something's uncertain. It's a little hard to um, to figure out what the, what the price of it is. And it's going to matter for people. Premiums are going to be higher because of the way the Trump administration is managing the Affordable Care Act at this point. Or it's also for, like, individual insurance companies. It could be kind of win or lose, right? Because if they price too high for uncertainty and then they lose all their business and they actually didn't need to price that high, then they kind of lose. If they underprice the uncertainty and they get all the customers and then all the bad stuff happens, then they could really lose their shirts in another way. And so seeing the way that these different companies are, are sort of dealing with this uncertainty, you're, you see that some of them are going to be much better off than others in the final analysis because they're not there's not some standard risk price that they're all putting in. Right. And it's also important to point out that it's not just think tanks and advocates saying these things, these bad things are happening because of uncertainty. The insurers themselves have said this clearly and on the record. The insurance executives at their investor calls in interviews are saying there's way too much uncertainty. Either some of them said, we're out of here, they've already left, or those that are staying in for 2018 are saying, we're going to have to raise our prices to take into account all these different scenarios. So it's not a made-up thing. It's a very, very real and measurable thing. So what do we know about what they call the bare counties, counties where there's no insurer offering coverage on on the exchange? Um, That number seems to keep moving around. It's going down, as far as I could tell. So I think as of today, we're at seven. Um, With 10,000 people. To 17, 10,000 people, mostly in Nevada. 14 of those 17 counties are in Nevada. And then I think we have one each in Wisconsin, Ohio, and Indiana. Um, So I think it's actually an encouraging story right now in the bear markets where you're seeing them 
get filled um, where, where you're seeing insurance companies come in. We just saw last week in Ohio, one comp- or companies volunteered to cover 19 of the 20 Bear counties. So it, it seems to be the case that very few, if any, people will be living in areas without insurance companies. Granted, if you're in one of those areas, it is a giant, giant problem. Um, but a lot of people are going to be living in places and more people living in places with just one insurance company selling coverage. So this vision that the drafters of Obamacare had, that it would be this competitive marketplace like um, Expedia, which I think President Obama has referenced, where you could compare... Does Expedia um, <laughs> even exist anymore? <laughs> kayak, I guess, would be the more um, up-to-date <laughs> reference. Um, I mean, this is, for many people, it'll be like a kayak, but you only have American Airlines or something like that, or probably a small regional airline is what you're choosing from, essentially. And, and the the other thing is that, we, it, as Sarah said, it's the trend is downward. There are fewer Bear Counties. If you're one of those 10,000 people, it's a crisis for you. But compared in the overall scheme of things, it's it's not as serious as the political rhetoric suggests because the Republicans and other critics of the laws are, are really jumping up and down and saying, oh, there's nobody at all in that county. But what we don't know is come September 27th, mm-hmm. If there's still uncertainty or if the administration has removed some of these payments that the insurers are worried about, that number could go way up at the very last minute without a lot of time or resources or room or space to to correct it. So right now, the trend is downward, Mm -hmm. 17 counties, we think it is, uh, 10,000 people, mostly Nevada. Come October 1st, we don't really know what it's going to look and we, like. And we should point out that that's 10,000 people out of about 10 million on the exchange. Yes. So it, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a very small number, though, as you... Uh, I, if you I, wanted them, it's not a small no, number. No, absolutely not. But in not. terms of, the, of the, the, uh, the, the country, it's a small number and a smaller number than it looked like a few months ago. But... Um, politically, the way it's talked about, you would think that there are bare counties all over the place and that you know nobody could get insurance. No, but it's, it's a na- far narrower problem. I was interested in what you were just saying, though, that, that the possibility that, yes, it's been going down um, as mostly uh, you know insurance commissioners in states sort of go and jawbone companies. And plus, I think there's some companies who see some opportunities. It would be great to be a monopoly insurer in a place um, coming in. But I guess my big question is what happens if they all, you know, we get to the end of September and they have to sign those contracts, and then they suddenly all say, no, we can't do this. Yeah, I was speaking with Cynthia Cox yesterday, who was one of the authors on that Kaiser report that sort of aggregated what's happening with premium requests in, you know, I think 20 U.S. cities. And she said that, you know, it's a little bit too late for there to be much movement on premiums. You know, you could see them go up a little bit, up or down as insurers negotiate with their regulators, but they don't really have the time to sort of like go back and do soup to nuts recalculations. But the binary choice of in or out, that is something that they really can decide about in until the very last minute. And so I think if something really weird happens in the policy universe between now and the end of September, I think it's not unreasonable to think that some of these insurers might decide to jump ship. And if you talk to them, I think they feel like on the cost sharing reductions for next year, they can price it in, right? Because this is the price of insurance premiums for next year. So if they know that those those subsidies will not be paid to them, they can just charge more and there's some range of how much more they think it will cost them, but they can make that calculation. It's, it's pushing 20%. Um, 20% but, above and beyond whatever right, above else. Beyond what it's they like else a 20% else. surcharge, right? But if the cost-sharing uh, subsidies are pulled this year, which is what President Trump has been threatening to do, these insurance companies are already locked into their premiums for this year, and they could lose a lot of money even in just the last couple months of this year. And I also think it would be seen as this huge violation of trust. The whole system depends on this public partner, public-private partnership between the insurers and the federal government. And if the federal government says or a court says, "Okay, next year, like you're not going to get this money," you know, strategize accordingly. 
I think maybe they can live with that. But if in the middle of a year where contracts are signed, where you know they are providing insurance to people at contracted rates, if the policy rug gets pulled out from under them, I think that that could have a much more catastrophic effect on the way that they think about the future of these markets, particularly some of these small carriers that have been the ones that are trying to fill the gaps because they don't necessarily have the kinds of reserves and savings and other sources of income that will insulate them against you know millions of dollars of losses in the short term. But it's not just if these subsidies are pulled suddenly and dramatically in 10 days from now, for instance. Um, it's not just what does the loss of that subsidy income and can I price if I'm an insurer? Can I can I adjust my prices going into 2018? It's a bigger signal about the administration's policy toward implementation or keeping the ACA functioning in the coming months and years. So I think it's not just calculation of how do I price my product, what do I put the premiums at if I don't have these subsidies versus this larger existential question about what's next. And how bad does it get for me as an insurer? And you guys have anticipated my question about, you know, let's talk about where we are on these 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 cost sharing reductions. These are the for for those who haven't been listening, these are the discounts that insurers are required to give to people under two hundred and fifty percent of poverty, not just for their premiums, but for their out of pocket costs, their deductibles and their cost sharing. And they are part of the law and there's a legal fight about whether or not Congress ever appropriated the money. Um so there so basically we're at a place where it appears that or at at least until last week, it appeared that the administration could simply stop paying the subsidies. But that we've had we've had a change since the last time we talked, and that's the attorney ge- attorneys general entering this lawsuit. So, so where exactly are we on the administration's ability to actually just stop making these payments? I think it's certainly much harder now. What happened last week is that a number of attorney generals. Um, who generally, um, you know, are Democrats, uh, elected officials, they won um, an argument that they should be allowed to represent, to to defend the cost-sharing reduction subsidies if the Trump administration tomorrow were to say, well, we don't defend this part of the law. We agree with the House. We, we think this is illegal and we'll stop paying them. The Democrat AGs, they made the argument that, well, we could be negatively affected. We have standing. We should be able to stand in. So I think that makes it much harder to drop the lawsuit. You have someone who's willing to swoop in and keep defending this part of the healthcare law. But, you know, at the same time, to Joanne's point, if you did see the Trump administration back away from this, even though you have this backup actor, there's that violation of trust that I think one of the big questions in insurance companies' minds right now was or is, does the Trump administration plan to support the Affordable Care Act? Do they plan to make it easy for people to enroll? Do they plan to do things that will help keep premiums affordable? And taking that away, even though you have the Democrat AGs who could step in, you're sending a strong signal like, no, we're not planning to support this. You know, So I think it could have a negative effect even with this backstop that's been added to the lawsuit. Because if you're an insurer and you're looking for, by definition, certainty and predictability, that's their business. Um, it, it just create. I mean, I think that the correct legal term might be a big mess. You know, mm-hmm. that if, if Trump does try to cut these off, yes, there's a lawsuit. And yes, we're not sure what Congress might do in, in, when they come back in September. And yes, there's all these other variables of, you know, what other people in the administration want the president to do. And this has been going on. This is drama has been going on for months. I don't think any of us really think the most likely scenario is that they cut off and 
they get the subsidies get cut off in ten days. But I also don't think any of us would keel over in shock if they did. We don't think it's the most likely. It is not impossible. And which well, is what we, the, what we say every you know about everything in this administration since January regarding the ACA. We don't think so, but it might happen anyway. And you know, it's, in this it's case, six months the, of surprises. The president has has threatened this repeatedly for six months. Yeah, and it hasn't happened. That's Clearly, other people in the administration have been telling, and governors, and and not just in the administration and on the Hill, other people are saying not so fast. But as we, you know, we're speaking on Thursday morning, we are in a whole different international arena than we were when we <laughs> gathered around this table last week. We don't know what's in store on any number of fronts in the coming weeks. But I do think this is a particularly important period that we're in right now for two reasons. One is that the timetable, like now is the time. You know, once these insurers are kind of locked in for next year, it becomes a little harder for them to back out, although not impossible. So, if Trump stopped paying these subsidies, you know, in the next 10 days, like, I think that would have very, very big effects, you know. Um, if he does it later, it's it sort of, I think the fallout becomes more complicated. The second reason is just that I do think that because of the failure of the Senate to pass any kind of major health care overhaul in the last few weeks, I do think the political ground has shifted a little bit. So I think part of Trump's motivation always in threatening to get away, do away with these cost-sharing subsidies and sort of injecting additional turmoil into the Obamacare markets was to say to members of his own party and to Democrats in Congress, look, if you don't do something, it's going to be terrible, as opposed to if you don't do something, it'll be OK, and we'll do a little stabilization package on the side. <laughs> and I think now he knows he doesn't have the votes to do something completely different. And so, you know, it's, it's obviously hard to predict what how the president evaluates that changing environment. But I think if he kind of lets it ride now, then I think that's a sign that maybe he has recognized that destroying the Affordable Care Act doesn't actually improve his chances of getting a legislative package through the Congress. And, of course, uh, if he does, then... <laughs> You know, let the chaos come. And we're not having a huge summer of town hall meetings. There's not a lot of them going on. So we only have sort of anecdotal reports that are not, you know, statistically significant. But what we are hearing anecdotally, we are not hearing lawmakers going home and being yelled at. Why didn't you repeal the Obamacare law? Because you promised. We're hearing, why did you vote to repeal? We're hearing support for the law. Now, again, that doesn't you know, that doesn't, that's a snapshot in the second week of August. Um, but we're not hearing, we're not seeing a political backlash at home that is going to encourage them to come back in September and try to do a big repeal package all over again. It's not 2000, the summer of 2009. Right. Which I is mean, when... we're not, which is what some of the conservatives hoped would happen, actually, that if it failed in the Senate, if repeal did fail in the Senate, and they, it failed in three or four different ways, that they would go home and there'd be a lot of conservative backlash and they'd, you know, Know, strengthen their spine and come back and get the job done. I'm not seeing anything politically right now that is uh, that is suggests that that is the scenario. What we are more likely to see is some kind of beginning to figure out some kind of partial stabilization. Can they do a small? Can they pay, can they appropriate money for the subsidies and stop the fight? Maybe, but it's really too soon to know. We know there are voices on the Hill calling for that. Republican voices calling for that, or, or Republican voices at least willing to do that if somebody else calls for it. It's it's murky at the moment. The the Hill could just say, okay, we're going to appropriate the money, forget this lawsuit, forget the fight. There's a lot of other questions that are unanswered, but let's answer this one, and then we can move forward and figure out the rest of it. We, we are, as you mentioned, we are. I mean, the thing that we do seem to be seeing is some tentative moves to bipartisanship. We haven't seen bipartisanship you, on you, health. You, you, I keep saying yeah. they have to go look it up. Yeah. Well, they did. I mean, they, they did, did macro. Exactly. <laughs> they have this one bill, which was... And FDA. Which was, yeah, and FDA. But which, yeah, so things that have always been bipartisan in health care remain 
been bipartisan, but this has not been bipartisan for a really long time. And we're seeing, you know, so so who wants to go through sort of Alexander and, and Patty Murray? That seems to be the beginnings of it. What do we think might come out of some kind of bipartisan process at the in the Senate? Yeah, so I was really interested yesterday in this report, I know a few of us covered, that came out from this kind of odd Bedfellows Coalition of Health Policy Wonks, a group, um, I mean, Julie, you've been doing this longer than I have, but a group I did not expect to see on the same paper. Um, you had people like Ron Pollack, who has led, who founded Families USA, a key advocate for the Affordable Care Act. Um, Lonnie Chen, who's been um, an advocate of some of the Republican replace plans, was Mitt Romney's 2012 health policy advisor. Um, and Rubio later. Yeah, yeah I, I never expected to see those two on the same policy document. But they, you know, got to this group together. Um, and Gail Walensky, um, President Bush's former Medicare chief, where they had some recommendations. And I think that was a really notable step to me because it suggests that um, the people that Senator Alexander and Senator Murray's staff are talking to are essentially behind the same plan at this point. Um, so it it seemed like a possible path forward if you have, you know, this is a group with really deep Rolodexes in Washington, the type of people Senate staff call when they're saying, hey, we're working on this stabilization package. What do you think? Um, that being said, I think one thing that was notable in the report was some of the areas of disagreement where um, they you know, did not issue a recommendation on whether to keep the individual mandate, for example. They just said we need strong incentives for people to buy health insurance. Although they, they did suggest that you could do something that wasn't the they individual They said you could mandate. do something that wasn't the mandate. So I think there is some space there. So I think um, that struck me as a um, kind of important, low-key step towards a bipartisan package, by no means a guarantee. But um, it, it suggested if this group of people is agreeing, then it might be possible for health policy advisor staff on the on the Hill to agree and possible for senators to agree as well. I thought what was also interesting is actually an earlier version of that, th- that set of proposals came out four to six weeks ago. I don't remember the exact date. There was a, a Hoover Institute paper. There was a Wall Street Journal op-ed. And all of us got a little bit of email. But at that point, you know, like it was all repeal, repeal, repeal. We were focused on the Senate. And it made you know an invisible thought. Um, And the fact that they re-released it and got a lot more attention shows, I think, that the ground has shifted and you can have at least a conversation about a bipartisan opening and these ideas. These are big names in healthcare. These are respected people and they're not necessarily people who agree on things in a norm, in, in the past and they are coming together and saying, okay, if we're going to be bipartisan and it is time to be bipartisan, here's a roadmap that you might at least want to begin with. And it was very much aimed at the Senate Health Committee. And I do wonder whether the congressional leadership, you know, in the House and in the Senate are really as interested in this kind of bipartisan approach as you know, Patty Murray and Lamar Alexander are, you know, one of the things that really characterized the push for the American Health Care Act and the Better Care Reconciliation Act and all of the various other little permutations that came along the way is that, you know, yeah, sure, all of these health policy experts were on the Rolodexes of uh, the people who drafted this legislation, but I don't know that they were getting a ton of calls. I think the kind of, you know, health wonk intelligentsia was really shut out of the process of writing that other legislation. And the leadership seemed uninterested in that. They were more interested in kind of big thematic goals and in political compromise within their caucus. So it, it, I'm curious to see, like, maybe something comes out of the help committee, but is yeah. that going to be the thing that is going to, like, percolate up uh, well, I think to the a House vote? is a huge obstacle. I could see, you know, in the Senate where they never passed 
passed a bill, it might be possible to come together to do something like this. But I think, Margot, you're 100% right, particularly in the House, where you have the sway of the Freedom Caucus. You have they, they passed their repeal bill. I think that's a, a tough sell. And again, it goes back to the deadlines we talked about earlier, a very tough sell to get done um, by September 27th when insurance companies need to make their decision. Um, for a story I wrote earlier this week, I looked up the dates. There are 10 legislative days between September 4th when Congress gets back and September 27th when insurance companies have to decide whether they want to sell Obamacare. That's a tall order to move a bipartisan Obamacare fix package through the House and the Senate in 10 legislative days. And plus, remember, they also have to do yes. the debt ceiling and all of the spending bills and CHIP, uh, and CHIP. CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which, of course, could could end up a, right, a vehicle for some of this. You could also break down, you could break this down into parts. And the easy, you could do the easiest part you could do. Remember that the subsidies, the continuation of these cost-sharing subsidies were in the repeal bills for, I believe, two years. And I don't remember if all the different versions had two years. But the concept of continuing these payments temporarily, to you know, create stability as you move ahead to you know, in that case, a little bit of stability, <laughs> right? But I mean, they the, the the entire stabilization agenda really hard to get it through in the month of September. Could you appropriate or at least st- say enough? From the key people saying we're going to appropriate, could you could you put the subsidies in the annual spending bills, even if you put one year's worth, or giving the insurers that signal we're on this? Um, I can I'm not I can see a pathway for that happening in September. I'm not disagreeing that there aren't a lot of obstacles, but if you break that out and say subsidies for 2018, um, we are going to appropriate. We're going to we understand this is a necessary interim step while we figure out the true conservative path towards stabilization um, or the true bipartisan path or whatever path they decide is the right flavor, I can see some kind of a stopgap. Let's just deal with this. I mean, some of the appropriators have raised that. And because it was in the Republican legislation, I haven't heard the leaders. I don't know if any of you have. I have not heard the leaders come out and say that, but I have heard some appropriators well, we say saw, they're open to it. You know, the last time that Congress passed a spending bill, which was a you know shorter term spending bill. In April. Uh, there was some discussion about putting it in then, and there mm-hmm. were even some committee chairs and other kind of influential people, um, both in the House and Senate, who said they wanted to, and then ultimately it was not in there. But I do think that legislation is a pretty good model for thinking about how some kind of bipartisan health bill would pass, which is, you know, they sort of lost all the conservatives on that bill, right? They needed a lot of Democratic votes and then some moderate Republicans, and that's how you kind of – and it was largely ignoring Trump's budget and, and uh, Trump's agenda in terms of spending, but there were a lot of members of Congress that were willing to to vote for a spending bill that you know was something that Democrats were comfortable with. So I could see I could see it getting tapped into well, the appropriations package because there's talking- a million other things in an, appropri- an appropriations bill is a must pass bill. I Whether you pass it as short term or long term, there's a must pass. You know, if you do a continuing resolution that's four days at a time, it still must pass. And because there's so many things in an appropriation bill, and there's something for everybody because it's you know however many trillion dollars or whatever, I can see some kind of um, patch for the subsidies going in. Tom Cole, who's the the, the chair of the Re- relevant subcommittee, has has he hasn't said I'm going to do it, but he's spoken favorably. One, said one he thing that's to interesting to me about all of this is it seems like all of a sudden there's kind of bipartisan agreement in Congress, you know, not across the board, but broadly that like okay, the Affordable Care Act needs legislative help, that we need 
a stabilization package of some kind. And then on the other hand, we're seeing these insurance filings. We're seeing numerous reports that have come from independent experts, uh, you know, in the business community and in the think tank community that basically say, like, for the most part, the Obamacare markets like would be okay. You know, with if, if this kind of specter of CSRs was off the table, it actually looks like markets are like they're not perfect. There's you know, there's going to be some single. Uh, carrier places. And there are some places that are quite expensive. But it is kind of weird in this moment. Like last year feels like the year when you wanted to pass a big stabilization package, right? <laughs> this year, like if they could just like if Trump could be clear with the insurers about what his intentions are in terms of managing the market, I think, you know, maybe it would be OK without a big piece of legislation. But with Julia's forbearance, one quick thought, because on one hand, you have Murray and, and Lamar Alexander, who do have a record of working. I mean, Patty Murray is a partisan Democrat, but this is a committee that has functioned on education and the FDA and some other some other bills. They do have an ability to do bipartisan work, including big bipartisan work on education. So they know how to talk to each other, and presumably their staff can talk to each other behind the scenes, you know, that it's not bloodshed all the time. We don't have buy-in from the Senate Finance Committee and Chairman Hatch, who, uh, you know, had a sort of colorful language of <laughs> stepping away from that buy-in this week. Um, and they control the money, so that's still an open question. And we certainly don't have leadership endorsement at this point, although right now we've got um, the majority leader in the Senate um, fighting with the White House in sort of <laughs> on the airwaves. Um, McConnell and Trump have been not saying kind things about each other or about this process. So we do have this core people who might be able to do a bipartisan fix, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, Everywhere around them, I don't think we yet have seen consensus on, on, on to-do stabilization or what it should look like. Well, it is August, so I do want to have at least one topic that's not on the immediate news. Um, and i got to change things up a little here because I want us all to discuss my extra credit story for the week. It's from The Nation, and it's called Medicare for All Isn't the Solution for Universal Health Care by Joshua Holland. Holland, by the way, has lots of liberal creds to his name. His point is that while giving everyone Medicare sounds easy and efficient, getting there would be incredibly disruptive. Also, Medicare itself is a lot more complicated and interconnected with the private insurance market than people think. Um, And while we spend so much time talking about divisions in the Republican ranks, including just now, Democrats are even more divided these days between single-payer Medicare for all types and the basically everybody else in the party. So where do you guys think we are with single-payer? Should Democrats ever again actually control the Congress (laughs) and the White House? I think there is a lot of momentum behind the Medicare for All slogan that it is very particularly in this era where you see a lot trying to be accomplished via reconciliation with a simple majority. I'm sure there are a lot of Democrats thinking about, well, you know, if we get control back, like, why don't we do what we just really wanted to do in the first place and pass a single payer plan instead of these marketplaces and this complex healthcare system? But, you know, one of the things Holland points out in that piece, which I think is right, is that there is still a big kind of policy void in terms of what that would actually look like. Um, you know, to take the Medicare for all, Medicare is a healthcare system that was made for people over 65. Um, I, I don't think it covers, for example, labor and delivery and its health benefits, because that's just not a benefit that, um, you know, its members would be taken advantage of. And that's, you know, one example that speaks to a broader point that, you know, bringing Medicare to everyone might not be the best way to get to a universal coverage system. And we just 
We haven't seen a lot of policy thinking in that space. There was Sanders' single-payer plan during the campaign, but a lot of analysis suggested it hugely underestimated how much it would cost. Uh, you know, I covered Vermont's single-payer effort pretty closely, and again, that is one that was felled by the ultimate price of switching to a single-payer system. Um, and I will say, I, I do acknowledge for listeners who I know will raise this question that it is cheaper overall, but it requires significant tax increases in a way that even in a very blue state like Vermont, was not palatable. So I, I think you'll see over the next few years... And we've just seen that in California, same yes, thing. You'll see over the next few years more, think, yeah, more thinking um, about what does single-payer look like in the U.S. Um, you know, if we're not going to expand Medicare to everybody, what is the health insurance plan that would that would work well here? So the, the joke that I always make about this is that this is sort of the Democrats repeal and replace. <laughs> yeah. You know, like they're, they want to tear, tear up the current system and start over with something new. And everybody hates the U.S. healthcare system. So if you tell them we're going to get rid of all the horrible things that you hate about it and make it free and make it fair and make it better, uh, people like that. And if you poll people on single payer in a kind of vague, abstract way... Uh, it tends to be pretty popular, but it actually like the details are what matter. And the transition from our current system to some future utopian system is like would be wrenching, expensive, difficult, would be extremely disruptive to everyone in the healthcare industry, to the insurance industry and to many individual Americans who are like pretty satisfied with the way that the system is working for them right now. So uh, it is as a slogan, I think it is broadly popular, and I think that there are kind reasons, of like repeal and replace, kind of like yeah. repeal and replace. Uh, but you know, as, as like an actual policy adventure, it is quite treacherous and difficult. Uh, I think back to those Obamacare cancellations, and then if you think of literally everyone in the country got a cancellation notice, like the havoc that would wreak, it's huge. Well, that's why you know it's one reason why the Clinton plan failed in ninety three, ninety four, because it was changing things for everybody, including people who had healthcare through their jobs, and they were happy with I think single payer you know it's we don't know we don't agree on the definition is it a whole new system that is you know as Margaret describes to tear it all down and start from scratch is it opening Medicare to everybody is it Medicare for all is it a gradual opening of Medicare and that's where you may see some kind of uh, bridge within the Democratic Party not that the Republicans will necessarily go for it but between the two wings of the Democratic Party you might see okay we're going to start down this path with this idea of opening Medicare to people who are 50 or 55. That's an idea that's bounced around over the years. It it's bounced back. around during the Affordable Care right. Act. <laughs> For all I know, it's bouncing around, you know, I mean, it certainly bounced around then, it bounced around in the 90s. Um, is is this, um, as a policy and political uh, item that instead of having a huge fight, which, I mean, I think there will be a huge fight in a litmus test and then the primaries, but I mean, can you sort of, can some of the fight be mitigated by using this as a starting point? Um, let's open Medicare up to a certain age group. Let's figure out, can they use their ACA subsidies? You know, how much will they have? There, there's no realistic, great, none, nobody can explain, including the four senators who just introduced this legislation. It's really vague. I mean, what does it mean? How much will it cost? We don't know. But as an idea, can it sort of be something that people can say, okay, that's what I mean? And both moderates and liberals can 
look at it and sort of say, yeah, 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 we can start there. Yeah, maybe Democrats better spend some of these next seven years working out the details that the Republicans didn't. Uh, uh, We're going to wrap things up now with everybody else's extra credit assignments. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. And don't worry if you miss it, we will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. We've already done mine for this week. Margo, what's your extra credit assignment? So I want to recommend a pair of articles that were in this month's Health Affairs. And I'm not going to tell you the titles. You can just look up the links. But they are two articles that look at um, how consumers shop for healthcare services. So we've seen more and more Americans have health insurance plans that have high deductibles. And part of the thinking behind that is if people are paying with their own money for healthcare services, they'll have an incentive to kind of shop around and try to get good prices, especially on certain kinds of services that are easy to shop for, like, you know, an MRI, an X-ray, a lab test. Um, And one study was just a survey. They surveyed a little bit more than 2,000 people, and they found that only 3% of them had ever looked uh, to see what the cost of a certain procedure was before they uh, got it or tried to shop in any way. So that's a really low percentage. And then the other looked at what happened in California where a federal, I'm sorry, state employee benefit plan uh, included a special transparency tool that was supposed to make it easy for them to price shop. And basically what they found was pretty similar. Like I think something like 15% of people looked once and almost no one looked more than once. And people did not choose cheaper things even though they had access to this tool. And so I think it just shows that the theory of consumer-directed healthcare is there's a big transition that's going to have to happen if it's going to uh, we're going to realize the utopia that um, that many of its advocates hope for, where people can uh, exert downward pressure on healthcare prices and can reduce healthcare spending by being more prudent with their own dollars. We don't see, even though more and more people are exposed to healthcare costs directly now, we're not seeing yet people really being comfortable navigating this market in the way that they do quite aggressively in almost any other form of consumer behavior. That's cheery. Joanne? <laughs> well, well, now that we all were able to turn off C-SPAN for a week, there were actually lots and lots of great stories. And I think all of us came in with like five ideas of what could be the extra credit. Um, the one I'm going to focus on is one from Oregon Public Radio. And it um, patients in Kaiser Permanente there, when you go in and you fill out your paperwork or your electronic paperwork, it's not just, you know, when was your last you know tetanus shot? There was also a life situation questionnaire. And it asks about transportation, about security, about whether you have a home, whether you can get to the doctor, whether you have food. And people who, and it, it, it normalizes this. The doctor gets the information as part of the routine intake. There's no stigma. It's just part of your health care is your social setting. And then if you have unmet needs, they give you a patient navigator, which this particular radio piece called a bureaucratic ninja. And um, <laughs> they start helping you meet those needs. And it is cheaper for the insurer. It is better for the patient. And um, it actually makes health sense if you get like people's lives under control, they can get their health under control. Sarah. Um, so I want to recommend a story from one of our co-hosts, Paige Cunningham at the Washington Post, who did a lot of reporting on Affordable Care Act navigators who have been very given very little information about what this open enrollment period would look like, um, about how they will be supported. And my favorite detail from this story was this very bland statement from a CMS, um, a Center for Medicare Services spokeswoman, that um, I think it said something along the lines of, you know, we, we are still figuring out what our plan was, 
But then CMS, um, the federal government, had tried to retract that statement. I think Page, to her credit, included that detail that um, the statement was provided and then retracted. It, it was, I think, a nice window into um, how difficult it is for a lot of us to get any information from um, Health and Human Services right now, that even this statement that was very bland and generic was one that was the subject of a tussle between the spokesperson and the reporter. It's pretty clear that we have no idea what they're going to do because they have no idea what they're going to do. I have to say, like, this episode was hilarious, and I was also glad that uh, Paige included in her story. But it reminded me a little bit about what it was like in the early years of the Obama administration, too. I feel like (laughs) it's not unique to the Trump administration, you know. It reminds me of... um, 20, the fall of 2013 with the launch of healthcare.gov when... What website? <laughs> when information was also incredibly difficult to come by from um, Again, the Again, as I would point out, HHS then and now, not quite sure exactly where they're going, so they don't want to yeah, say anything but, wrong. But then they eventually started having calls, and we haven't had the equivalent. I mean, I don't think Tom Price has had a press conference since taking office, and I don't think Seema Price has had a press call with us, which past administrators did. Yes. So there's not... Um, you know, we all dealt with the Obama administration. None of us are going to say they, you know, returned every call and told us everything we wanted to know. But this administration's been particularly quiet. Yeah, we should talk about that at, at some future point. But that I think that's it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Joanne Kennan. And I am at Sarah Cliff. Great. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.